All right, good evening. I hope that our sessions on Isaiah, Yeshayahu, were both very depressing and very inspiring, because that's what the book is supposed to be. It's supposed to simultaneously hit you between the eyes as blown opportunity after blown opportunity, and simultaneously uh, incredible promise for redemption after each and every failure down to, the, to, down to the end, and that's what makes it such a book of consolation. We now move ahead to the book of Jeremiah. Unlike Isaiah, which has this very harsh negative side and this great consolation side, Jeremiah is heavily favored toward negative. So be, brace yourself. For the next three weeks, we're going to be severely depressed until like the last five minutes on March 16th. Okay, there's, there's no way around that. There's even an English word that I've never used, but I know it's there, called Jeremiad. Jeremiad. Uh, Jeremiad, that's how you pronounce it? That's what happens when you read and don't, and don't say. <laughs> so if it's Jeremiad, I, I stand corrected, then it, it, same thing. It's a sad dirge or poem named after our prophet. So there's no Isaiah or, or, or things like that that I'm aware of. And so it, it really says a lot about who this prophet is. Jeremiah was the prophet of the destruction. And that's what makes him so depressing to read. Because the, the destruction of the first temple is the single greatest catastrophe of biblical history. And arguably one of the worst things that's ever happened to our people. If, you know, I don't want to start making comparisons between several of the greatest catastrophes. But it's, it's right on up there. The destruction of the first temple was the first time on record that the people of Israel collectively thought, this is the end of the God-Israel relationship. It wasn't just a really bad thing that had happened. When God's temple goes up in flames and the people are exiled or killed, that's really the end. And they really thought that this was the end. And only two people stood in the way of absolute and total assimilation into the Babylonian culture. Only two people. Huh? Ezra's a little bit later, although we owe him a great thank you note, Roberta, as we'll talk about like next, I don't know, March or so. I'll worry about that next year. But, for, but Ezra is definitely one of the people. But I always think of who I want to write thank you notes to. Okay, so you think of Moshe Rabbeinu. You think of Abraham and, and all of our patriarchs and matriarchs. Huh? Yochanan ben Zakkai is a good one. But it, and on the biblical spectrum, one of the very top priority thank you notes go to the two people who really saved us from total assimilation. One is the prophet Jeremiah, who was living in Israel, and the other one is the prophet Ezekiel, his contemporary that we'll do next, that'll be in May after Pesach, but he's next in the lineup. Ezekiel was in Babylonia handling the same situation on the Babylonian side. These two prophets, with their unbelievable vision, were able to look beyond the darkest moment in our history and tell the people, yeah, this was terrible, but there's a future beyond that. And if it weren't for those two people, we would not be here learning them. In fact, none of us would be anywhere learning anything. We'd be people, perhaps, but certainly not the Jewish people. They really helped save us. So that's the optimistic part of what's going to be otherwise very negative for a while. And that is Jeremiah's frantic, prophetic efforts to ward off this catastrophe. It didn't have to happen. So we begin with source number one, the introductory verses, and then we'll have to break into our historical survey again just to make sure that we're all up to speed. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anatot in the territory of Benjamin. There are a couple of commentators, by the way, who are aware that there was a high priest at this time named Hilkiah. It was Josiah's high priest. But it doesn't seem very likely that our Jeremiah is the son of that high priest. It's, he's the son of another Kohen, another priest with the same first name. Right? It was a different Hilkiah Cohen. This one wasn't part of the high priesthood establishment. He wasn't part of the Jerusalem establishment. And it's actually an interesting thing. As New Yorkers, we might appreciate this more than average. There are parts in the book where Jeremiah's Anatot background... Anatot is a small, small little hick town several miles north of Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem establishment actually call him Ha'anatoti, the out-of-towner, the Anatot guy. We're the Jerusalemites, we're the establishment, we're the city people, you're the out-of-towner. And they actually shrug him off. They say, nobody should listen to him, because we're the Jerusalem establishment, and he is just from Anatot. So his township actually does play a role several times in this book. Verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him in the days of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign, and throughout the days of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of King Zedekiah, son of Josiah of Judah, when Jerusalem went into exile in the fifth month. So here are the narrator's 
introductory verses, and we discussed this in Isaiah. Let's do it again. Whenever you have verses like this in a biblical book, including here, this is what we call in college language a prerequisite. You're not allowed to go further until you know this period. Because the book is predicated on your knowing what those three verses mean. So I'm going to give you a brief survey of the historical period, which is really very dramatic. Jeremiah's tenure was over 40 years long. He was a prophet for a long time. The 13th year of Josiah was the year 627 BCE, just to give you a number. And here's how it goes. Right after where we were, King Hezekiah, Hezekiah, and the miraculous salvation of Jerusalem that we discussed just last week in the book of Isaiah, that was the year 701 BCE, just to give you our, you know, to get some kind of gauging of where we're holding on all of this. Hezekiah died a few years after that great miracle. And then his son, Menasheh, was easily and by far the worst king ever from a religious point of view. He was a disaster. The book of Kings has not only nothing nice to say about him, but an awful lot of horrible things to say about him. There are various words that the book of Kings uses for idolatry. So if you just make a table of all the different synonyms and words for idolatry that you'll find associated with any king in the book of Kings, Menasheh has all of those combined and some more. There are different words for evil in the book of Kings. Well, Menasheh has all of them. He is the only king in the whole book that gets all of the adjectives for evil. He's really horrible. And the reason why he's so bad is because he put idols into the temple in Jerusalem. Nobody else had the guts to do that, even the idolatrous kings. They worshipped idols, but they did it somewhere else. That's horrible enough. But to bring them into the temple of God, there's, there's no greater sacrilege than that. That was the moment when God decreed that the temple has to be destroyed. Menasheh was king for 55 years, the longest king ever in our history. Started at age 12 and just kept on trucking until he was 67 years old. Managed to bring the country to spiritual ruin. His son Ammon, who took over, was king for just two years, nothing doing there but wicked. And then Josiah was the son of this Ammon. That's the Ammon that we just heard about. Josiah, the grandson of the very wicked king Menasheh, began as king in the year 640, at the tender age of eight. Because that's how it goes in the kingship. Your father dies and you're the crown prince. Well, you're the king. So when you're eight, you can't really do a whole lot. So he became under influence of righteous priests. And he turned himself around. So despite his truly wicked grandfather and father, he swings around and becomes one of the most righteous kings, if not the most righteous king in all of Israel's history. He's phenomenal. And by age 16, when he starts becoming a God-fearing king, he decides, what in the world did my grandfather and father do? This is awful. We've got to get rid of this stuff. And I'm the king, so I could actually do something about it. And he does. Get rid of it, he does. He starts destroying idolatrous shrines, idols, <laughs> priests of the idols, shrines to God that don't belong in, in Jerusalem, because nothing else. We should only be serving God in the temple. Josiah goes on a rampage. And then the dramatic event that occurs in the book of Kings is in the year 622. In 622, the high priest Hilkiah, unlike Jeremiah's father, who was, had the same name, the high priest comes and said, I found a Torah scroll. It's not exactly clear what makes this scroll so special, whether it was Moshe Rabbeinu's Torah, which is really awesome, or just that he found a Torah scroll rolled to the blessings and the curses for what should happen when Israelites are faithful or unfaithful to God's covenant. Well, when you read it, it's pretty depressing anyway, right? If you read it and the whole country is wicked, well, then it's crazy. Josiah tears his garments upon hearing the Torah, goes into mourning and says, what are we going to do? I know, time for the biggest spiritual reformation in our history. And he goes bananas. That's when he starts smashing all the shrines. He goes all on out. He eliminates idolatry from the country. It's terrific. And Jeremiah, at this point, is prophet for five years. He started in 627. Josiah has this big reformation going down in 622. So these are good times from a religious point of view. It's a good time to be a prophet. 627, in addition to being Jeremiah's first prophecy, is another very important thing in the historical spectrum. And that is that a man named Ashur Banipal died. You might not think that that's such a big deal if you don't have the same animosity to Ashur Banipal that I have. But let me share some of this animosity. Ashur Banipal was the sixth of the six great Assyrian emperors. 
starting with Tiglat Pileser and the others that we talked about in the book of Isaiah. These were these world conquerors. They were doing a swell job. They were mighty. They were powerful. They never lost, except for Jerusalem. When Ashurbanipal died in 627, and Jeremiah is over in the kingdom of Judah getting his first prophecy, some man named Nabopolassar, the king of Babylonia, says, hey, Ashurbanipal's son is a loser. I think I could revolt against him and win. And so he revolts. He doesn't pay taxes. Well, the son comes rolling in with the mighty Assyrian army, and Babylonia wins. Nabopolassar was right. And Nabopolassar is like, not only is he such a loser that I don't need to pay taxes, I'll bet I can conquer his whole empire from him. Let's go do it. All right, men, and suddenly the Babylonian army comes rushing out of Babylonia, and the Assyrian empire instantly collapses. Instantly. It's truly amazing. The mighty and absolutely invincible Assyrian empire crumbles like that. So much so that by the year 620, the Assyrians pull away from Israel because they have to protect their eastern flank where the Babylonians are rushing out. They get all their troops out of Israel, which means that these are good times for the Jews. Josiah is righteous. Jeremiah is a prophet. There's a huge reformation going on. And the Assyrians are leaving. That's a lot of good things all in one place. And the Babylonians are relentless. They're going to they're win it all. By 612, just 13 years after the first rebellion, the Babylonians march on the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh, and they crush it. And suddenly, you don't need to be a prophet anymore. Everybody understands, forget about the Assyrians. What about those Babylonians? If they're going to conquer the Assyrians, it won't be long before they come for us. And suddenly, this may sound a little familiar if you rode with the Isaiah punches, everybody had to decide. Who, which team do you go for? Do you become a vassal of the Babylonians? Do you become pro-Babylonian? Do you just say, look, if they could beat the Assyrians, they sure could beat us. Do you side with them and just become a vassal and pay them whatever you want, they want? Or do you become anti-Babylonia? Do you start trying to form coalitions to resist the Babylonian onslaught and maybe we could actually have some independence? You'll never guess what side Egypt was on in all of this. What was Egypt? Egypt was anti-Babylonian. Egypt started telling all the surrounding states in the region, we'll support you, we'll send troops, let's all form a huge coalition and ward off the Babylonians. That was in 612. By now the, the tides have changed and everybody realizes the Assyrians are no longer the problem, but the Babylonians really are. Well, the Babylonians are not going to stop with Nineveh. They want the whole schmear. So they start attacking just north of Israel in the year 609. They're going after the Assyrians. And this time, Egypt realizes, whoa, 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 whoa. This is our backyard. They're on our turf here. We're going to go help those Assyrians. And so the Egyptians send with the king. They march through the land of Israel. Nothing against Israel. Israel just happens to be there. They need to get north of Israel. But King Josiah is worried about this. King Josiah says, wait a minute. You guys can't march through my land. This is dangerous for everybody. And the Paro at that time, his name is Paro Necho, says, Josiah, this isn't our fight. We're not invading you. We just need passage. We need to go up there and help them Assyrians. Josiah says, I won't let you through. And so the Egyptian armies open fire and Josiah is killed. The righteous King Josiah, who has done everything good and nothing bad, who has brought the nation to reformation, this golden spiritual renaissance at a good moment to have one, is shot dead at the tender age of 39. He had been king for 31 years. Well, once the king is dead, this gave the Egyptians impetus to keep on going on through, and this time the Judeans leave them alone. And they march up north through Israel. They help the Assyrians, and they stop the Babylonians in the year 609. The year 609 is exactly when Jeremiah becomes a national figure. Jeremiah had been prophesying locally in Anatot and other things, but he hadn't yet gone to Jerusalem. The year 609 is when he became nationally famous and specifically universally hated by everybody. And we'll talk about some of this even tonight. But first, I just want to give you a broad outline of the whole, sh the whole period. That was in 609. So after the Egyptians defeat the Babylonians and hold them off, well, now they come back home. They march south. And by now, the Judeans had appointed Josiah's son, Yehoahaz, to become the next king. But the Egyptians didn't like Yehoahaz, presumably because... It doesn't say this in the Tanakh, but we can all guess. Yehoahaz must have been pro-Babylonian. 
And Egypt is anti-Babylonian. So they don't want this son of Josiah on the throne. So they depose him and exile him to Egypt. It's the first time in our history that some foreign power just waltzed right into the palace, grabbed the king, and took him off into exile. They said, we don't want... We, this won't help Egyptian policies. You're out of here. So they exile the king. And Judeans are way too weak. They're not going to pick a fight with Egypt. That's crazy. And they instead appoint a, a, a brother of Jehoahaz. His name is Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was anti-Babylonia. So that's who they wanted. And Jeremiah's prophetic mission to, to Jehoiakim was, please be pro-Babylonian. That's the only way that we'll survive. It's suicide to be anti-Babylonian here. Isaiah preached neutrality, if you recall. That was his prophetic message to the former kings a century ago. Jeremiah's message is, let's be pro-Babylonian. We need to surrender, pay whatever taxes they want, and at least we won't die. So he and Jehoiakim, to put it mildly, really hated each other a lot. Jehoiakim didn't want to hear about this, not from any prophet, certainly not one from Anatoti. He said, get out of here. I'm ignoring your message. He tried to kill him. Didn't work. Jeremiah got away. But Jeremiah had a tough time because he was up against the entire establishment on the, on the political front. Well, the year 605 rolled in. And the Babylonians weren't finished up north. They sent a new legion of forces over there. The Egyptians once again go and help the Assyrians. This time the Judeans stay, stay quiet. They don't want to have another king shot dead. And the Babylonians crush them to smithereens. The Babylonians win a decisive battle at a town called Carchemish, just north of Israel. That was in 605. And at this moment, in 605, there now is... No more Assyria anywhere. That was the end of the Assyrians. Not only is their empire thwarted, defeated, their capital has fallen, that's done. The Assyrians are no longer on the map. Babylonia controls the entire northern region now. And as the Babylonians defeat them, word comes to the battlefront that King Nabopolassar of Babylonia has died. And they summon back the victorious general from the battlefront who also was the crown prince of Babylonia. And his name is Nebuchadnezzar. And he becomes the king of this Neo-Babylonian empire. Suddenly the Babylonians control the world, or at least a lot of it. Nebuchadnezzar is now the king, and that's in the year 605. And that was the moment where Jeremiah over in, in Judea was preaching nonstop, surrender to this guy. We have to be vassals. We have to be pro-Babylonian. We cannot revolt. If we do, we will surely, surely die. And again, Jehoiakim didn't like that message one bit. Well, finally, in the year six, uh, 597, Jehoiakim died, and his son Jehoiakim took the throne. There is little doubt in my mind that Jehoiakim was anti-Babylonia. So Nebuchadnezzar just sent a huge army into Jerusalem. And not only did he capture Jeho Jehoiakim, but he captured 10,000 of Judea's best and brightest, including the prophet Ezekiel. This is where Ezekiel goes into exile. And for the very first time, the Judeans begin to think this really might be the end. Up until now, they were very skeptical of Jeremiah's messages. In 597, there was reason to panic. The Babylonians not only took the king, which is already horrible enough, but 10,000 of our best and brightest, and they do it completely unstoppable. What are we going to do? And they appoint the uncle of Jehoiachin, another son of Josiah, Tzidkiah, or Zedekiah, the way we say it in English, as the new king, because he, was, he swore loyalty to Babylonia, but the nobility didn't want loyalty to Babylonia. Tzidkiah. Tzidkiah, the final king of Judea. Well, eventually the nobles got the better of the king, and they decided we need to revolt. Well, Nebuchadnezzar and his army came in, besieged Jerusalem, and the year 586, they broke through the walls, killed a lot of people, destroyed the temple. The temple goes up in flames. That was in 586. Exiled many others to Babylonia. After that, there were still people living there, and they appointed a governor, Gedaliah, who was pro-Babylonian. That's why they appointed Gedaliah. But there were still those anti-Babylonian Judeans who didn't really want anybody to be pro-Babylonia, so they assassinated Gedaliah, and we still fast for this man, right? He was assassinated on Rosh Hashanah. You can't fast on Rosh Hashanah. So we fast on the third day of Tishri, right after Rosh Hashanah. So after all those apples dipped in honey, at least there's a benefit to, to, to fasting, but it's a very sad thing, because this was the last semi-independent leadership that we had in the biblical period. Gedaliah is assassinated, and now the surviving community is still left in, in Judea. And they want to know, should they go to Egypt? They decide they don't want to be in Judea anymore. They'd rather be in Egypt. So they ask Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, God says, we've got to stay here. 
can't go to Egypt. And they said, we don't like your message. So they kidnapped Jeremiah and his student Baruch, and they all went down to Egypt. And that's how the story ends, other than chapter 44, which is the last chronological chapter in the book. It's not the last chapter in the book, but it's the last chronological chapter where in Egypt, Jeremiah's last message to the people is, folks, you're worshiping idols again? Haven't you learned anything? Anything ever? Like, guess why we're here? It's because of all this idolatry stuff. What in the world is our problem? Why are we doing this here? And the people say, bug off. The reason why we're serving idols is whenever we serve God, we get into trouble. They had the whole message that the whole Tanakh is trying to teach, they got it backwards. So that they thought that if you serve idols, that makes things better. And if you serve God, that makes things worse. And that's how Jeremiah's career goes. That was a pretty good survey for, for 15 minutes. And what you'll find if you actually try to read the book cover to cover, besides the usual problem that you have with books like this, it's not in chronological sequence at all. It's thematic, it's literary, but I don't teach it in order of the text, the way that I do with Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, the first 12 chapters, for the most part, really are, apparently, in chronological order. Okay, so that's good. So you can have the story, keep the text in order, and keep right on going. Here you actually have to kind of piece it all together. There are many chapters, we don't know when he said them. There are many chapters that are dated. And to me, there's a lot of value to doing this in chronological sequence rather than in... rather than in... in uh, text sequence for that very reason. All right, so that's the historical background that our text expects us to know before plunging into the text. And now we're back in source number one, verse four. Okay, so so far we've done three verses, but I think we've done them okay. The word of the Lord came to me. So this is actually the beginning of the prophecies. The first three verses were the narrative introduction. Now we're up to the actual prophecies. Before I created you in the womb, I selected you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet concerning the nations. God's first words to Jeremiah is, I chose you before you were even born. Huh? I said, when we grew up. Yeah, I had to also. I had to also. Yeah, the the memorization technique. But in the meantime, and there's something to it, even though. Is he talking to Jeremiah or to the people of Israel? God is talking to Jeremiah. Meaning, this is what we call in English, we call this a prophetic initiation. Meaning, yesterday, Jeremiah was not a prophet. And this is his first prophecy. This is what initiates him as a prophet. So God is speaking to him. Jeremiah is not saying anything to the people right now. This is God's message appointing him to be a prophet, so to speak. Now, there are two other pre-birth consecrations in the whole Bible. Shimshon is one, Samson the judge, that an angel comes and says that he's going to be a Nazir. And that happens before he is conceived. And, and Shmuel, very good, that's the other one. Shmuel, likewise, his mother, Hannah, vows, God, if you give me a child, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to the temple, to the Mishkan, and likewise, he will be a Nazir. Or at least that's what it seems to mean over there. So those two were consecrated as Nazirim, Nazarites, pre-birth. Jeremiah is the only prophet on record where God comes to him and says, I chose you pre-birth. The usual impression that we get is like burning bush style, right? Moses, Moshe is a shepherd, minding his own business, looking after his sheep, and bam, burning bush, and God speaks to him. We don't imagine, oh, God picked him before he was born. He might have been, because God knows the future, so why not? God picked everybody before they were born. But that's not the way that prophecy is normally depicted. It's usually God shows up and starts speaking to a prophet, and we hear the initiation, or we don't, and now you're a prophet. But we don't get the sense of pre-birth consecration. Jeremiah is very special, because he gets this. So Rambam, in his Guide to the Perplexed, says, actually, Rambam is a prototype. God actually chooses all prophets before they are born. So I remember reading that the first time. And saying, Look, I can't tell you no. You know, Rambam is a smart man. He knows what he's talking about. He can't know this from the biblical text. It's his way of understanding prophecy. So what do I do in a situation like that when Rambam says that God chooses all prophets pre-birth? Go looking to see if they weren't. Huh? You go looking for the ones that they say. Well, in the, text, in the text, I already knew this part, and Rambam knew the same thing that I knew. There's nobody else in the text about whom this is said. So the text won't help me here, because Rambam is going beyond the text, as he very often does. He has sweeping theological statements that go beyond the text evidence. This is one of them. There are thousands. Okay. Now, what you do here is you email your brother-in-law if he happens to be a professor of genetics at Johns Hopkins University, which is what I did. I said, hey, Don. That's his name. Um... 
Are there any genetic theories about spiritual genius? So my problem is that I asked him this question in 1998, which is the first time that I looked at the book of Jeremiah. So he answers back, no, there's nothing whatsoever. But then in the year 2004, 2005, when the first articles about the God gene were published, well, we reconvened, and he said, actually, now there is evidence to support this idea of spiritual genius, meaning that there are tendencies. I mean, to me, intuitively, I think we all sort of can figure this out when you meet people. Some people seem more spiritual, however vaguely you want to define that. Right? Some people have different talents and geniuses from birth. So you can't put your finger on it. It's hard to define these things. I get it. He got it too. But, but, but Rambam's theory, you know, the idea of having prophets being pre-birth, so he wasn't talking about DNA. He didn't know DNA yet. But to me, it made a lot of sense. This idea of an inborn spiritual genius, same as Mozart was an inborn musical genius or Michael Jordan was an inborn basketball genius. There are certain tendencies that you have that are, you can't just practice a lot on the piano to become Mozart. You can become good, but you have to have certain abilities pre-birth to be able to make that work. So now there are studies to support Rambam's claim, which still doesn't mean that he's right, (laughs) right? It doesn't mean that all prophets are pre-birth. But let's say he's right. So Rabbi David Kimchi, David Kimchi, known as Radak in the 13th century, accepted Rambam's point. He says, okay, fine, let's grant Rambam's point. So why is Jeremiah so special that God only tells him? That matters more, right? In other words, what Sandra was saying before is from a text point of view, what we care about. Let's grant that all prophets are pre-birth chosen and they're all spiritual geniuses from the get-go. So why tell Jeremiah that? So Adak argues, well, God tells Jeremiah that because Jeremiah is about to have the hardest prophetic career in the world. And so he wants to encourage him. He wants to tell him, you know, I have loved you since before you were conceived, since you were in the womb. I know that you are going to be the one who is going to bring my message to the people of Israel during these dire times. It's the opposite. Huh? It's the opposite. Which is? The other one didn't need to be reassured that they will actually be prophets. They believed it. Jeremiah, because of his mission, needs to be reassured about the fact that he actually is and also... Uh, surrounding is not necessarily leading to what's come. You know? You're exactly right. I mean, he, he definitely needs to be reassured. And, and, and that's, that's how I think you and Radak are fairly similar. There's another approach, though, which, which is just as valid, and probably they're both true simultaneously. What God is telling Jeremiah is, you're stuck. <laughs> I picked you before you were born. There is no wiggling out of this one, right? It's a way of saying, this, this is what you were born to do. Now go out there and do your mission. And both of these seem to be true, not only throughout the chapter, but really throughout the entire book. That God is reminding Jeremiah, several times Jeremiah tries to resign. He's like, God, I've had it. These people are lousy, nobody's listening, they're a disaster, they're trying to poison me, they throw me into stockades, they throw me into pits, they're beating me up, and those are the good ones. Right? They all hate me. I hate this job, I want out. And God says, sorry. <laughs> right? You, you, there's, there's no out. You're the prophet, and go do it. And Jeremiah actually describes his experience. We're not going to see this in the text that we study, so I'll tell you about it. He says it actually feels like he's exploding inside, that it's like a fire that's burning out. He can't help himself but prophesy. In other words, he wants to, he's trying to stop, but he's compelled. He's so burning up inside with his mission, with his vision, he actually is unable to step out of it. He has to do what he does. And so both of these tracks run throughout the book, where we see this element of God encouraging Jeremiah, hang in there, you can do it, just do what you got to do. And the other side is, don't, don't bother resigning, it's not going to happen. And this brings us to verse 6. I replied, here's Jeremiah's first word, Ah, Lord God, I don't know how to speak, for I am still a boy. Which sounds very much like Moshe, right? So actually, Sepharadim chose this passage to be the Haftarah Parashat Shemot because of that parallel. And Ashkenazim actually have a passage from a different book altogether for Shemot. It's one of these really interesting things. One of these really interesting ones where Sepharadim and Ashkenazim have totally different passages from different books altogether for Shemot. Sepharadim thought that the main theme of Parashat Shemot is this. The selection of the prophet Moses his stalling and God saying, you got to go. Right? And that's what this passage is all about. Ashkenazim pick a passage about, from Isaiah about redemption, talking about how Israel was enslaved. It's about the national story in Parshat Shemot, that they're enslaved and now it's time for the redemption. 
And so that's what we're that, that's what we're at over here. So be that as it may, there's certainly a parallel to Moshe. And the Lord said to me, do not say I am still a boy, but go wherever I send you and speak whatever I command you. In other words, I'm not doing this burning bush thing for two chapters. Just go. Right? And that's the end of it. Have no fear of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Radak explains when it says I am with you to deliver you. You have to just add a couple of words which are more explicit at the end of the chapter, which is, I am here to deliver you from death. But boy, are you going to suffer. In other words, what God assures Jeremiah here is that they will try to kill you and will be unsuccessful. But if they throw you into pits and put you in stockades and try to kill you, well, that's fair game. That's going to happen a lot. And, and poor Jeremiah repeatedly has this problem running through the book. It's, you know, there are many, many sides that are very depressing. The rest of chapter 1, which I've skipped out, is where God, for the first of many times, tells Jeremiah that the Babylonians are going to come and destroy Jerusalem, parentheses, unless the people of Israel do something real quick. Yeah, Miriam? Very well put. Very well put. He's kind of like a microcosm of what's going on down here. I, I, I like that. I like that. I like that formulation. And so that's the beginning of Jeremiah's career. His very first prophecy in the year 627, when things are good. Josiah's on the throne. The Assyrians are beginning to crumble. Spiritual reformation is about to happen. God tells Jeremiah that the destruction is on the way. And Jeremiah immediately takes that as the destruction is on the way if we don't stop and, and do something better about it. And this brings us, we're going to skip source two. We're going to go right into source three, which is the beginning of chapter two. This is the very first prophecy in the book where Jeremiah speaks to other people. Right? Now, chapter one is all God speaking to the prophet privately. It's the initiation, going back to Megan's question. Well, here we have God's first prophecy to the people. The word of the Lord came to me saying, in source three, Go proclaim to Jerusalem, thus said the Lord, I accounted to your favor the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it were held guilty. Disaster befell them, declares the Lord. And then the next verses are, Why have you all blown it since then? You've turned to idolatry. You've ruined everything. That's what the next 50 chapters or so basically say. But the next immediate verses say that. Now, it's great that the very first prophecy that Jeremiah gives to the people is this loving, romantic, honeymoon-esque depiction of the God-Israel relationship. God wistfully looks back at the Exodus when everything was so pure and good and the people of Israel trusted God and they went right on into the wilderness, no fuss, no muss. Now, if you recall the Torah... It's not always, it's not also blissful, right? And there's a bunch of fetching going down from the very beginning. The Israelites are not so trusting. In fact, one of their fatal flaws is that they're not so trusting. This is a good example, as any prophet will tell you, of selective, remem- <laughs> selective memory, right? And it's, it's not in order to distort the historical record. Jeremiah knows that we can all read the Torah. And we know that it's a lot more complicated than that. Jeremiah needs this point. The point that he is trying to make, and he uses this imagery in source 4, so let's just look at it for a second. It's beautiful imagery. It goes back to the Torah. Open your hearts to the Lord. Remove the thickening about your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath break forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your wicked acts. Ay, 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 ay. Remove the thickening about your hearts. Bless JPS. They usually do a very good job. This is a disaster. The Hebrew says... Himolu Lashem. What is Himolu? Circumcise your hearts. I can't believe they didn't translate it. That's the whole point, is the circumcision of the heart. Don't be a mohel of that variety. It's not, it's not talking about heart surgeons, right? What does it mean to circumcise your heart? Make a covenant with God. Make a covenant with God. And what is circumcise? What are you removing? Unnecessary. You're removing the, the part that, um, that, that symbolizes that you are part of the nation. Exactly. So, sin is spiritual bad cholesterol. That's what sin is. The idea is that there's a pure heart down there underneath, 
And then, unfortunately, you sin. And now there's this sheath of terrible blockage and stuff building up over there. And the idea of heart circumcision is get heart surgery that involves removal of that layer of spiritual cholesterol. And then the pure heart is fine. You go back to that pristine state. That imagery goes back to the Torah. The Torah uses exactly the same language of circumcising one's heart in the context of repentance. The idea is that the heart itself is good. It's fundamentally healthy. It's just that now there's stuff blocking it because of our sins. And repentance is the removal of that layer to go back to the pristine state. Jeremiah's casting of history as this pristine, romantic honeymoon is exactly that point. We started off pure, and then we layered on all of these terrible sins. But if we repent, God still remembers the pure. That's, that's why he does that. He's not trying to rewrite history as that, oh wow, it was all glory days and then we really blew it. The point is he needs to talk about repentance in this context, that God loves Israel, that the God-Israel relationship is fundamentally strong and as healthy as ever, but there are layers and layers of centuries of sin interfering with our health and the health of the relationship. But if we just got rid of it, if we repented, things would all go back to this good thing. That is one of the central messages of this book, that Jeremiah constantly tells the people of Israel, yeah, we've been awful, really, really awful. We have a lot of problems, but... But we can fix that. We don't have to remain in this awful state. It's up to us to get that surgery and be able to, once again, have the pure heart. So that's Jeremiah's opening message to the people. And then he lambasts them for chapter after chapter after chapter about what they've been up to since then. This terrible betrayal of God. There's one beautiful call to repentance in chapter 3. It's not in the source sheet, but it still reminds me of the 1975 Yankees, you know, the ones who traded their wives and kids and dogs even. Bizarro. Look it up online. I don't even remember the name. but huh? There were two pitchers on the New York Yankees when I was a very little boy. I don't remember the story from when I was a little boy, but I've since, thankfully, but, but I've since read about it. I don't want to say their names wrong, because if I'm getting the wrong ones, I'm slandering innocent people in this. There were two pitchers on the New York Yankees who each had a wife and two kids, and so they traded wives. And, they, and then I think the older kid stayed with the father and the younger one went with the mother and they traded dogs. It was the weirdest trade in baseball history. And of course, <laughs> none, none of the marriages worked out. Everything fell to pieces and what a disaster. And be that as it may. Now the Torah specifically prohibits this kind of behavior, thankfully and not surprisingly. And it actually talks about, you know, if husband and wife are married and that doesn't work out, so then there's a get, right? That's where the get law comes from. It's in the Torah itself. And let's say the woman now marries man, number, man B. And let's say that does not work out. Okay, so now she's still allowed to marry other people. In fact, she can marry, you know, keep on going down the line. But she's not allowed to go back to husband A, unless we have these wife exchange things. Right? So the Torah is already very conscious of, you know, the 1975, I think it was 75, certainly the 70s. The, you know, this future Yankee disaster situation. And saying that this is an outrage and it's total, you know, total elimination of the sanctity of marriage. Yeah, Gary. Mike Kekich and Fritz Peterson. Thank you so the big, much. The big issue is who kept which dog. Oh, so uh, we'll have to look this up after, but thank you very much. That, 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 that's who they were. So be that as it may, God comes into play in Jeremiah 3, chapter 3, it's not in our source pages, where he says, look, the God-Israel relationship is a marriage, and you, Israel, as the wife, betrayed me, the husband, says God. And so I've divorced you. And now you've gone ahead and married idols. So according to the law, even if Israel were to abandon the idols, according to Torah law with men, she couldn't go back to God. So God says, look, I wrote the Torah, I can tell you this. Get rid of your idols and come back to me. I will accept you despite the law. And God invokes this imagery, this legal imagery, saying that even I'm the husband, and theoretically the wife is not allowed to return to the first husband, please return to me, says God. It's very powerful imagery. And that's all part of Jeremiah's early career. And that brings us to the year 609, where he becomes a national figure. And at this point, again, the Babylonians are just north of Israel, still temporarily thwarted by the Egypt-Assyria coalition, and the Babylonians have not yet broken through to what will then be Israel. And this is the prophecy that made Jeremiah of national fame and, for that matter, infamy. This, this is the only time in the entire Tanakh, by the way, that this situation happens. In chapter 7, you have a prophetic oracle. You hear his words. And in chapter 26, there is a story about that oracle. You have no other place in the entire Tanakh where that occurs. 
Chapter 7 is prophetic words. You actually hear his prophecy. And chapter 26 is, when he said this prophecy, here's what happened next. Really cool. And, and actually very, very important in terms of, I always advise my, my students who are pre-law, learn Jeremiah chapter 26, because it's actually like sides of a case and precedents. You actually see some kind of legal debate going on, bringing precedents, trying to figure out what to do with Jeremiah. The word which came, source 5, to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the house of the Lord, meaning go to the temple. And there proclaim this word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, mend your ways and your actions, and I will let you dwell in this place. In other words, repent, and then you can stay. Don't put your trust in illusions and say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these buildings. In other words, God will never destroy his own temple. No, if you really mend your ways and your actions, if you execute justice between one man and another, then things will be good. Do you consider this house which bears my name to be a den of thieves? As for me, I have been watching, declare the Lord. God says, look. Isaiah already talked about this. Several prophets talk about this problem. Where you have plenty of Judeans or Israelites who go to the temple and do all the right worship services. They bring their sacrifices. They pray. They have the priestly blessing. All of those good things. It's all good. But they're also evil people. They're immoral. So God is outraged. He says, you're using my temple as a den of thieves. You're using it as a refuge for your immoral behavior. So like any prophet would tell you, you can't do that. Because then the sacrifices are not only not helpful, they're a sacrilege. It becomes a bribe. God is saying, you're treating me like a pagan deity. Pagan deities eat meat. They don't exist, but they eat meat, right? And it's a barter system in the pagan world, right? You bring sacrifices. Now that gods have their meat, they're happy, they let it rain. It's a very simple trade system. It's barter. Now, we don't have that. We don't have any barter. God doesn't need meat. He doesn't eat meat. We bring sacrifices as a way of pleasing God. It's very different from feeding God, right? But God is only pleased if the sacrificial order is part of a religious behavior and religious lifestyle. Otherwise, it's a total fraud. So God is fuming at the people for being immoral as they abuse their temple. Now what happens, and and Jeremiah in this chapter said, and if you don't repent, the temple will be destroyed. Those Babylonians that are still away from us, they're not so far away, and they'll be here soon. If God isn't helping us, we're in a heap of trouble, and the temple itself will be destroyed. Well, now come... Yeah, sorry, Sandra. Is, I'm sorry. Is that supposed to be seen, then, as a mijaka negadita? In other words, if they're misusing the temple, therefore, I'm going to take it away from you? That's what it sounds like. Excellent. I, I, I can't tell you for sure, but it sure sounds like it. The uh-huh. idea is that the temple is now being so badly abused, I don't want it anymore. I'm going to let it fall. Yeah, Zoa. And when we spoke about a sealed decree in Isaiah, what was that referring to? That decree was against... Certainly the northern kingdom and plausibly much of the southern kingdom, but not yet the temple. Okay. Whereas there the decree was the Assyrians are going to come and wreak a lot of havoc. Okay. But there specifically God told Isaiah, I won't let Jerusalem fall. Right? And Jerusalem was miraculously spared. God tells Jeremiah, less than a century later, Jerusalem itself will fall and the temple will be destroyed. Well, what will the people's reaction be when Jeremiah comes to the temple in the year 609 BCE, shortly after Josiah has been been killed by the Egyptians, shortly after Jehoahaz has been exiled, and now Jehoiakim is on the throne? That's all the year 609, and here's source number six. At the beginning of the reign of King Jehoiakim, son son of Josiah of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Thus said the Lord, stand in the court of the house of the Lord, And speak to the men of all the towns of Judah who are coming to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words which I command you to speak to them, do not omit anything. Perhaps they will listen and turn back, each from his evil way, that I may renounce the punishment that I am planning to bring upon them for their wicked acts. Meaning, even though there's a decree against Jerusalem from the time of Menasheh, God says, I'm willing to get rid of that decree if the people repent. But they better repent. Say to them... Thus said the Lord, if you do not obey me, abiding by the teaching that I have set before you, heeding the words of my servants, the prophets whom I have been sending to you persistently, but you have not heeded, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make the city a curse for all nations of the earth. In other words, the temple will be destroyed. The city will fall, the temple will be destroyed. 
And when Jeremiah finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all of the people, the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him, shouting, You shall die! How dare you prophesy in the name of the Lord that this house shall become like Shiloh and that the city shall be made desolate without inhabitants? How dare you? All right, take a step back for just a second before we go on in this saga. Here's a prophet of God trooping into Jerusalem, into the temple itself, saying, God doesn't want your sacrifices or the temple if you're going to be so abusive to it. You need to be righteous. And if not, it will fall, the city of Jerusalem will fall like the city of Shiloh did a few centuries earlier. And the people say, how dare you say that? We're going to execute you. Why do they want to execute him? First of all, they're evil people. And evil people don't like prophets. <laughs> Especially when prophets tell them, you're doing the wrong thing. And in very stark terms, right? People hate that. So, evil people certainly hate that, right? In general, you know, because I have such a strong love of Jeremiah, he's a very sympathetic character. So anybody who opposes him, I, I, I don't like them very much. And so right away, as soon as these people grab him and want to execute him, the assumption is these people are evildoers. These are wicked. The priests and prophets in the temple of Jerusalem... They're no good. They're a wicked religious establishment. And that's one way of slanting the story. And by the way, I'm sure there is truth to it. But why else might they interfere, David? Well, if you get rid of the, get rid of the prophet, maybe you'll get rid of the prophecy. Very good. So there's an element which several scholars embrace very, very much, which David is referring to, that there's kind of this magical thing. Right. They might trust that he actually is a prophet, but they figure if they kill him, then his prophecies won't come true. So David's thing is simply taking what we just heard a moment ago in terms of wicked people don't want to hear him, so they want to kill him. It's the same point. They're wicked, but they're afraid of him. So they want to kill him to make sure to undo or negate the prophecy. Whether or not that's true is another ballgame, but certainly people back then thought that. There's definitely truth to why they might want to do it. Why else might they want to kill Jeremiah here? Okay, so we all agree that they're wicked people. Good, I'm, I'm with you. But I'll give you two other reasons why the most righteous people in the world might still want to kill him. And that's what makes this saga so fabulous and, and complicated. You know, we're in the year 609 BCE right now. So if you really, really, really have absorbed that lightning speed bombardment of material that I gave you in the first 15 minutes, so what you'll find is that in 622 there was a national reformation. And the wicked king Jehoiakim just recently assumed the throne, which means that we haven't had a chance to go back to bad, which means that at the moment the nation is actually pretty righteous. And at this moment, an unknown prophet comes barging into the temple of Jerusalem and saying, you wicked, horrible evildoers, the temple is going down. They might look at him and say, we don't even know who you are, but forgive us, we're, we just did this huge reformation thing. We're really righteous right now. Give us a few years, it might be another story. But Israel is actually in a pretty good place right now, religiously, as far as we know. These could be very righteous, Torah-observant people there, as opposed to just the horrible, evil, immoral people that Jeremiah is describing. It could well be that the establishment here, these priests and prophets, actually are pretty Torah-observant. Not only are they monotheistic, but they also are doing a lot of good things. And here's a prophet telling him the temple is going to be destroyed. Nobody's ever said that. Well, one person, Micha, a century ago did. But this is a foreign prophecy to them. That's one reason why righteous people might complain and, and protest this sort of thing. You have to remember, and this is my favorite question about the book, we know that Jeremiah is a prophet because we have a book of Jeremiah. But these people never met him before. They never heard him before. They never heard of him before. How do they know that he's the real deal? Right? And not only that, it's going to get more complicated. That's, what, that's all the fun for next week. I'll, I'll hold some of my fire. But there were false prophets out there. Jeremiah really had to battle against false prophets, right? These were people preaching very different messages from Jeremiah. So those false prophets who were preaching idolatry or violation of the Torah or other wicked behaviors, okay, you and I could tell, all right, they're the fakers, right? But how about the ones that were just preaching a different political message, such as anti-Babylonian? 
So you have righteous people saying, God told me, let's revolt against the Babylonians. And Jeremiah is coming along and saying, we must surrender. God told me we must surrender and be vassals to the Babylonians. And you and I, we're God-fearing people. We want to do the right thing. We want to follow God. And we hear these people talking, and they all sound religious, and they all claim that God spoke to them. Right? How in the world are we supposed to know? Yeah. Aren't we also tilted against Jeremiah? Because under Isaiah, if you allowed yourself to be the vassals to the Babylonians, you were cooked. So it's almost as if history, as well as the false prophets, are against Jeremiah. So that even the most God-fearing, normal person who wants to do the right thing will think, well, I should do what we didn't do last time. Look, it killed off King Hezekiah. He was really righteous. So maybe we should do what we didn't do last time and we'll be okay. Excellent. And, and, and by the way, getting back to invoking Isaiah, not only what Sandra is saying, but to read, you know, you can imagine the priests and the prophets pulling Jeremiah over and grabbing him by his shirt, saying, Jeremiah, I don't, we don't know who you are, but wouldn't you agree that Isaiah was a prophet? And you'd be like, of course, he's one of the greatest. How much have I learned from his teachings a century later? Well, we think he's a prophet too. And don't you remember what Isaiah said? Look at source number eight. They wouldn't have quite said it that way, but they would have said, look at this passage. Right before when Sancheriv, in the year 701, less than a century before where we are in 609, God said to the prophet Isaiah, a definite prophet, I will protect and save the city. This is God speaking. I will protect and save the city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. That night an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And the following morning they were all dead corpses. Here's the prophet Isaiah saying that God is protecting Jerusalem for his namesake and for the sake of the Davidic dynasty. And you better believe that this miracle, you know, these are the, your great-grandparents were telling you these stories in 609 BCE, right? And your grandparents were saying, you know, my parents were there. This was a miracle that definitely resonated well with the people of Jerusalem and with all of Judea. That God miraculously spared Jerusalem and God said he would not destroy it. So what would Jeremiah's answer be? That was then, this is now. That was then, this is now. I got a new prophecy. And this new prophecy is, God was saying Isaiah is going to give, he's going to protect Jerusalem then in 701. And he did. That's not an eternal promise. Right now, in the year 609, I got another prophecy saying that now God's saying, that's it, I'm really going to destroy Jerusalem. Yeah. So how are they supposed to know that Jeremiah is real, though? Huh? Well, well that, so, what, so what's happening, what I'm trying to describe is the nation is pretty much in a righteous state as of 609. There's a prophetic precedent from Isaiah saying that God will protect Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is at the moment completely unknown. And he's saying, thus says the Lord, if we don't repent, Jerusalem, the temple will be destroyed. So wicked people, of course, are going to hate him. But even righteous people, even the righteous establishment, the priests and prophets of Jerusalem might say, I don't know who this guy is, but he's obviously a false prophet. A real prophet would never get this message from God. Because Isaiah said otherwise. Because we're righteous. And then one other bonus, this is a misguided thing. Many of the Judeans, even though they believed in our God, still believed in our God the way that pagans believed in their gods. And that's already a problem even though they wouldn't have self-perceived them that way, right? What they understood is, pagans all understood the same thing. When pagans went to war with each other, what do they all know? Well, when pagans are fighting with each other, their gods are fighting too. And whoever's gods are stronger, that's who wins the war, right? That's how it goes, if you're, if you're a bunch of pagans fighting against each other. And if your pagan gods are, if your gods are really strong, you might even destroy the other people's temple, That's because your gods were fighting for you and your gods are stronger than their gods. But everybody would agree, no god would ever destroy his own temple. You're trying to destroy the other guy's temple. Right? And the Judeans believe that also. You're saying that our god is going to destroy our temple? That can't be. It's his home. And God is God. He's stronger than the Babylonians. He's stronger than anybody. So I'm trying to set up here is that Even a fairly righteous group of people who want to serve God, who even possibly do largely serve God, 
who believe in the prophets, who believe in Isaiah. This unknown prophet troops in in 609 and says, thus says God, the temple is going to be destroyed if we don't shape up our act. How are the people supposed to know that this is the real deal? And what happened in this scene in 609, right there in the temple, you shall die because the penalty for false prophecy is ca- it's a capital crime. If you claim prophecy and you're not a prophet, you, you would be executed by the courts. You know, it's really, really hard to convict somebody. But they were saying, we have empirical evidence. We know that this is impossible. God would never destroy his temple. We're righteous. God doesn't destroy his own temple. He said to Isaiah that he wouldn't destroy Jerusalem. That's three good strikes against Jeremiah. He's a false prophet. We don't need to wait. It can never happen. And so they say, you shall die. How dare you prophesy in the name of the Lord that this house shall become like Shiloh and this city be made desolate without inhabitants. And all the people crowded around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. We're in verse 16 now. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and prophets, this man does not deserve the death penalty. For he spoke to us in the name of the Lord our God. So the officers, thank God, come out on the right side of the fence. And they say, look, he's speaking in God's name. He's not preaching anything against the Torah. So let's, we can't execute him on that basis. But then a whole struggle broke out. Some of the elders of the land arose and said to the entire assemblage of people, Michal Marashtait, an earlier prophet from Isaiah's time, who prophesied in the days of King Hezekiah of Judah, said to all the people of Judah, Thus said the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed with as a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps and ruins, and Temple Mount a shrine in the woods. And others start chiming in with other precedents against Jeremiah, and a whole fight breaks out. It sounds like a total chaos scene. But finally, somebody named Achikam comes into play in verse 24. However, Achikam, son of Shaphan, protected Jeremiah, so that he was not handed over to the people for execution. I mean, there's a whole mob scene, as well as all the officials trying to have a trial and they're either going to try him and execute him by conviction or lynch him by the mob, whatever works. So Achikam swings into action, the righteous Achikam. By the way, remember that guy, Gedaliah, who I mentioned before? He's Gedaliah ben Tim. Right? So this is, his, this is Gedaliah's father. These were, this Shafan family were righteous people and great supporters of Jeremiah. Gedaliah from the Davidic dynasty? Gedaliah is... I don't remember offhand if he's from the Davidic dynasty. I think he's not from the Davidic dynasty. I think he's just, but he's part of the scribal family. But Gedaliah ben Achikam, who became the governor after the destruction of the temple, I think he's not from the Davidic dynasty. But it's that, this is that Achikam, just to get these names you know, lined up in a row. So he, it sounds like he just showed up with a baseball bat and said, everybody get away from the prophet. And that finally broke up the scene and everybody goes home and leaves him alone. But Jeremiah is in a very tough spot. He has to somehow persuade the people out of sheer desperation. He knows he's a prophet. We know he's a prophet because we have his book. But in 609, this was not at all clear to the people that he was a real prophet. And again, besides, wicked people don't want to hear prophets even if they think they are prophets, right? What David was saying, it's a, let's get rid of the threat. But even people who might have been very righteous, God-fearing people, at least in some way, might have seen him as an absolute false prophet. And because there are competing prophets that we'll talk about next time, We all have to sort out, how is Jeremiah going to persuade everybody that he is the real deal and everybody else is the fraud? One thing that Jeremiah does say, and I just want to close with this, in Source 7, one of his earliest prophecies during Josiah's Reformation, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what rebel Israel did going to every high mountain and under every leafy tree and whoring there? Referring to the now exiled northern kingdom. And after all that, her sister Faithless Judah did not return to me wholeheartedly, but insincerely, declares the Lord. Jeremiah gets the inside scoop. He says that the whole repentance movement was shallow, that many people continued to be wicked just under the surface. Josiah was very righteous. He got everybody, he cleared all the idolatry from the public places. But deep down, this wasn't a real repentance. And that's why Jeremiah is able to come in in 609, right after this repentance movement, and say, you're wicked. He sees through, prophetically through this, one cool archaeological fact and what this will close. Some scholar published an article in the 90s just with that survey of household idols found in different time periods in Jerusalem. He found a lot of household idols, you know, the small little guys instead of the big shrine type of idols. And he said that there's no statistical difference between the 8th century, 7th century, and 6th century BCE. Statistically, it's the same. So he thought this proves the biblical account of Josiah's Reformation because... Josiah got rid of the idols. But you see, these household idols are there. And like, 
Your archaeology may be good, but your biblical scholarship is a disaster, right? The whole point of Jeremiah is that, yes, Josiah cleared out the public idolatrous shrines, but that underneath it, in the private household idols, were still there. That's exactly what he's saying. So the archaeologist just tells us exactly what Jeremiah is complaining about prophetically, saying, okay, on the surface, it looks like everything is good in Josiah's time, but in fact, there is some rot, and that is the rot that needs to be cured. So next week, our saga is going to bring us to how is Jeremiah going to somehow, by the way, it's not going to work. He's going to fail. He's not going to convince anybody of anything. But how is he going to try? That's the fascinating part. How is he going to try to persuade everybody that he is actually the real prophet, given that there isn't yet a book of Jeremiah up against the false prophets? And with that, I look forward to seeing you next week.